0: This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.
1: There's a through line of Jewish food. That is a a through line of the holidays, a through line of family, a through line of just why you're making the food in the first place.
0: Leah Koenig believes that the stories around food are as important as the recipes themselves. She has become the mother of modern Jewish cooking, about which she is the author of six notable books. Her most recent, The Jewish Cookbook, features more than 400 recipes from around the world, each connected to a fascinating story. Leah is a culinary scholar, thanks to her education in environmental studies and religion. And Leah believes that the power of food is ultimately about how it allows a moment of connection between cultures. Coming up, you'll hear wonderful recipes such as spinach, walnut pâté, and the importance of chicken-rendered schmaltz, and what makes chicken soup great. This is Leah's story. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Leah, it is such a pleasure to have you here in my kitchen today, and we are celebrating the new year, so it is especially wonderful to have you here to celebrate it together. And Leah, your last name is spelled K-O-E-N-I-G. But it is pronounced Koenig. So a hearty welcome to Leah Koenig. We have a lot to celebrate, but I think most specifically, we're here to celebrate your newest cookbook, the Jewish cookbook. And it's a beauty. But you've written many others. I believe this is your sixth book. So remind us what some of the other books have been.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I guess my favorite of the books I've written is Modern Jewish Cooking, um, which came out in 2015 uh, with Chronicle Books. And that was sort of my first... I guess, taking a stand of what I think of Jewish food in the 21st century, um, which is, you know, global, a global cuisine and um, an exciting cuisine and just kind of figuring out what that looks like today. Um, So that's one of my favorites. Um, And I also have with Chronicle, also the, the Little Book series. So there's three books, the Little Book of Jewish Appetizers, of Jewish Feasts, and the Little Book of Jewish Sweets. Um, and it's basically like an a la carte cookbook. <laughs> I <love that> idea. <laughs> yeah, each one kind of like really focuses in on a specific category um, of Jewish cuisine. So it sounds
0: like you could continue to do this for the rest of your life, which also speaks to what Jewish food and Jewish cooking is all about. Um, In the new book, The Jewish Cookbook, how is it different than the one you love so much, the modern um, Jewish cookbook? Mm -hmm. And what is the message of this book?
1: Um, It's really different than modern Jewish cooking in that Um, it aims to really sort of capture the world of Jewish cuisine in its pages. It's 425 recipes, I think. Yeah, about (laughs) 400 um, home-cooked recipes and 25 uh, contributed by chefs from around the world who are doing really exciting stuff in the world of Jewish food. Um, And the idea is that you know, whether you, you know, if you're Jewish, whether you come from Morocco or Eastern Europe or Mexico City, you find yourself in the pages. And if you're not Jewish, that you find something really kind of compelling about Jewish cuisine um, and, and see it as the global, um, kind of borderless global cuisine that it really is. Right. I, I believe that people
0: sometimes refer to Jewish cooking as um, cooking that is fusion. Mm. And I don't know if that's the right word for it. What do you think? What do you like to call it? Yeah. I, I came up with a word I'm going to share with oh, you in a minute. I'm so but I'm curious. Really curious. Yeah, I'm yeah. curious about your thoughts about this idea of you know, Jewish cooking being fusion cooking.
1: I think of it less as fusion and more as, I think of Jews as sort of um, transmitters and adapters of cuisine. Mm. Um, they're not really creators of cuisine, except for a few dishes that are just absolutely things like um, haroset, which is, you know, the, a dish eaten on Passover. It's a mix of, you know, nuts and fruits, and it's meant to sort of represent something very specific. Like, that is a dish that is specific to Jewish cuisine. Um, but throughout history, Jews have um, cooked and eaten the foods of their neighbors and found ways to adapt those dishes for the kosher laws, for the Jewish holidays, for the prohibitions that um, that uh, come with Shabbat and things like that. So um, it's really only when Jews have moved to other places, which has happened <laughs> Countless times and continues to happen uh, throughout history that certain foods have become associated with Jewish cuisine. Um, so that that to me is is what's really interesting. And the other piece of it is wherever Jews go, they bring their foods with them and then they incorporate the um, ingredients that they find there. Like if you if I could share one example um, in Mexico City right now, there's I think something like fifty thousand Jews with uh, Ashkenazi Eastern European backgrounds, mm-hmm. and you know they're making making matzo ball soup. They're making babka. They're making a lot of the traditional dishes of Eastern Europe. But you're seeing them in, you know, second and third generation now add chilies and add um, (laughs) diced avocado and uh, cilantro and white onion to the top of their matzo ball soup, the way that you would serve a Mexican soup. So you're starting to see it's not really fusion. It's more... um, an ad- adaptation. I
0: love this. Yeah. I wish
1: everyone could see my face. I'm sitting here with my mouth wide open <laughs> and thinking
0: about what that would look like about – I really needed some chilies in my chicken soup this oh this
1: week. A chipotle pepper in a chicken soup, it adds this like smoky depth to it. It's, it's mind-blowing. It's and mind-blowing. the idea of
0: chopped avocado and onion and a little tomato on top of that really sounds so wonderful. Because honestly, my chicken soup this year, for some reason, it was really bland. Oh, no. And I wanted to ask you, <laughs> do you have a secret? What, what do, ingredient do you add to make yours really vibrant? And even in terms of the color, I know sometimes uh, doing onion skins mm-hmm. – Lots mm-hmm. of onion skins mm-hmm. can impart a beautiful color. Um, you can add a little turmeric, which I've done, but that does add a little bit of bitterness. So, do you have a little secret?
1: Yeah, about making great chicken soup. I like to add two different things to chicken soup. Um, one is a little sweet potato, which does give it a little bit of a golden color, and wow. you you strain it out. So it does the same thing a carrot does, but um, there I think the beta carotene actually in sweet potato is darker or stronger, and it imparts a little golden golden flavor. Uh, is that original? Color. To you, I've I think it's brilliant. Never seen it elsewhere. Yeah, I don't me know. Me too. I don't know. <laughs> is <laughs> anything is anything original? I don't know. Yes, I believe <laughs> some things are. <laughs> um, and the other thing I like to add, not usually both in the same soup pot, but I like to add fennel instead of parsnip mm. because it has that kind of mellow, sweet flavor that gives it a little something. A little something extra.
0: Oh, it's funny. I thought you were going to say fennel instead of celery because celery is so particular and not everyone I understand loves it. It feels like such an old fashioned flavor in the way that green pepper does. Do you remember every recipe 30 years ago or when our mothers cooked had green pepper? Green bell pepper. Right. It's just not a
1: taste. It was the era of cantaloupe and um, cottage cheese. You also had the green bell pepper. Yeah, no, I I love celery. And to me, it's not chicken soup without celery. So I, I swap out the parsnip. So so interesting. Yeah.
0: Um so you mentioned a word before getting back to what Jewish food is you used the word borderless and mm. I like that a lot. But I started thinking about Jewish food really being a wandering cuisine and it really follows the footsteps of um people who are happen to be Jewish but live everywhere and and travel. But since it's the new year it's 2019 or it's 5780, right? 5780. What a year. And I'm thinking, I wonder what people ate back then. Any thoughts? In 5780? Yeah.
1: I mean, in- in (laughs) Kind of a crazy- You mean in zero? I I guess. Um...
0: I mean, it's when human beings started eating. They were hunter and gatherers, and at some point they applied fire and Cooking was born.
1: Yeah, I don't really know. I mean, I imagine a lot of nuts and seeds and berries and um, things that could be, you know, game that I I don't really know.
0: (laughs) Kind of an an interesting idea. Yeah, it
1: is. But going from
0: 5780 to the year you were born, um, I mean, one thing about this show is that I'm so interested in everyone's stories and we follow kind of a past, present and future. So Leah, where were you brought up? What are some of the tastes and memories of your childhood? Because I think many people listening really want to do what you do, (laughs) which is to go around the world and write about food and put it together in a kind of more intellectual way because at this point I see you as really a culinary scholar your research is is awesome thank you the stories that go with your recipes are every bit as interesting as the recipe themselves that's a huge
1: compliment thank you yeah Um, this is not my quote but uh, a friend of mine says food without stories is just calories Ah! and I I really think that's true like you can't you can enjoy a dish without knowing its story but you enjoy it so much more with Mm. um so, so let's hear your story. Yeah, so I was born uh, in Chicago in the nineteen early nineteen eighties, and um, my my upbringing was, um, you know, we were we were Jewish, uh, but you know, kind of not super practicing. So we would uh, actually go to Yom Kippur services and then go out to the the very non kosher Jewish delicatessen afterwards <laughs> for corned beef sandwiches. So that was <laughs> that was kind That's of not how the we... typical breakfast. No, is it? <laughs> no, and it was definitely not during breakfast time. Um, but my my mother was um and continues to be an amazing cook. Uh she, you know, I grew up in the time of Lunchables and <laughs> you know Pop-Tarts and things and and she was really not as you know we were allowed to have some of that stuff but she used fresh vegetables. She shopped, she shopped at a farmers market mm. um which wasn't as as popular to do as it is now back then. Um we never had fake maple syrup on the table. You know, we always had real really? maple syrup. Yeah. And you know she wasn't <laughs> snobby about it but she really like valued quality ingredients. So mm. I was actually a surprisingly picky child. Um like buttered noodles only for a long time picky mm-hmm. like kind of it's embarrassing to white admit. Food. white food. Yeah. Yes. Um but I still even though I wasn't eating everything that was on the table I was absorbing um the idea that like food is important and that um the ingredients and the building blocks behind food are important.
0: Um, And are there some tastes or smells that you remember that really evoke your childhood kitchen?
1: Yeah. Well, in terms of um, Jewish cuisine, I mean, she she made all sorts of kind of Midwestern cuisine, uh, chicken pot pie and pepper steak and kind of whatever, you know, people were sort of. (laughs) Eating and pulling out of magazines back then, um, but what I remember from Jewish holidays were a few things. One was her brisket, mm. which was always super juicy and you know never dry and kind of like always fork tender and just really delicious. Um, I also remember every year she made applesauce, um, which doesn't mm. sound all that exciting, but she started with red apples. She never peeled them. So the, you know, the finished product had this sort of rosy glow to it that mm. was really beautiful. Um, and now my family, we go apple picking every year and we use her, her recipe, which is also in the Jewish cookbook. I would hope so. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of been a family tradition that's been passed down.
0: And is there cinnamon in it or anything else that um, makes it
1: There special? is uh, a decent amount of sugar, I would mm. say. It's mm-hmm. It's more than the like kind of you know, hippie applesauce—the word that's that's not sweetened. It's sweetened, but it's so much more delicious and so velvety. There is a little bit of cinnamon in there as well,
0: and uh, the velvety is very interesting. You should say that because it's really a recipe that has two, two or three ingredients at the most. But it's such an interesting texture thing. And I had some the other night, and I just remarked on how delicious it was. And I think it's this velvety texture you're talking about, which comes from a food mill. Yeah. Is, do you use a food mill?
1: She did sometimes, I think. But we also used. Um. She had a pretty. Solid food processor, but I think the velvety also came from the the skins that had the like maybe extra um, pectin or something in them, but it gave it a richer a richer texture.
0: So the skins were pureed. In- yes. Ah. Yes. Okay. So interesting. But you
1: could not detect that there were actually skins in there. There weren't pieces of it. Mm. It's it's magic. It's it's the most delicious applesauce I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she made great uh, latkes to go with it. She yeah. So she did kind of the touchstones for the holidays. Mm. Oh. Oh, and one great memory i have yes i'm feeling you have many my mom is uh she's a master's of had a master's of public health um and she was very much into like low fat cooking and kind of mm. the 1980s no saturated fat you know everything very you know kind of conscious about that but her one exception was on passover every year she would render her own chicken schmaltz mm. um which she swore you could not make proper matzo balls without chicken you know rendered chicken schmaltz She's um, probably right yeah, I mean, I I often use vegetable oil, but there was something special about mm-hmm. the schmaltz. So I remember I would open the fridge, and for the week of Passover, there would be this like cloudy jar of chicken fat in the fridge, <laughs> and I would just be like, "What is going on?" But you know, she was onto something. And do you do that now? Um, I do render. Yeah, chicken, t- chicken schmaltz.
0: Because I noticed there's a recipe. Again, some of your recipes are so simple and some are really complicated mm-hmm. and, and we'll want to hear about uh, the recipes that are complicated but really worth it. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I there's one I'm just dying to make since uh, I've been looking through your book. It's just so fabulous. But this uh, grated black radish, grated onion, and chicken schmaltz. Yes. Salt and pepper. Yes. Right? This yes. sounds so delicious. It is amazing. Is this a
1: typically Jewish dish? Yeah. It's an Eastern European dish. Um, I, I call it sort of uh, like Ashkenazi grandpa food. Um, you know, <laughs> I actually just bought some black radishes because I saw them at the farmer's market. And this mm. is sort of the perfect season to make it. Great. Um, but it's such a simple mix. It's literally radishes, salt, and chicken fat, or you can use vegetable oil if you if you prefer. Um, it doesn't have quite the same flavor, but it's still pretty good. And you spread it on dark bread. You mm. can mix it with um, egg salad or chopped liver. It was often how it was eaten, and it's just um, has this sort of like zesty, uh, rich flavor while being so so simple to make. Um, and peppery because yeah. the and radish peppery. has a
0: very kind of yes um, peppery yes. taste.
1: Leah, did you have any idea
0: that you wanted to be in the food world or write cookbooks or be a culinary scholar?
1: Not at all. Not at all. No, I was actually not particularly interested in cooking as a kid. Uh, My mom was also very much her domain, the kitchen, and I was just sort of happy to let her do it and, you know, not spill flour all over her counters or whatever. But it was really in in college. I went to uh, college at Middlebury in Vermont, and Mm -hmm. I lived in a sort of a hippie co-op an environmental studies house. And so was, was that your major? Uh environmental studies mm-hmm. and religion were my majors. And religion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So um we we lived with 17 roommates and we cooked dinner for ourselves every night. And we kind of rotated who was doing the dishes and who was cooking. And it was really during those years that I first really, like the love of cooking kind of um, took hold. I remember mm. doing a lot of stuff from the Moosewood cookbooks and, you know, kind of the old school like millet loaves and baking bread for the first time <laughs> and making cookies. And just, it was really like a very uh, important time for me
0: mm. as a as
1: a budding cook, even and, though a lot of the stuff I made, I probably wouldn't want to eat now.
0: <laughs> and did you know that you it was possible to actually follow a career in the food world? I mean... So that oh, inspired you. Yeah. How did you even know what to do, where yeah. to go, how to get started?
1: Well, so, you know, I studied environmental studies and religion in in college, and then right after school I got a job with an organization called Hazon, um, yes. which is a Jewish environmental organization. So, ah, there's the connection. I joke that I'm the <laughs> only person who actually used both of my majors for my liberal arts degree. <laughs> and and very disparate ones. Yeah. In fact, I
0: wanted to ask you, what is the connection there, but I can see it. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So, you know, I did a lot of work with um, farming and agriculture and sort of you know Jewish traditions take on those things um, because you know if you go way back, maybe not to the year, zero but way back Jews were farmers they tilled the land um and there's a whole set of of Jewish laws around farming and around agriculture so mm-hmm. you know we we did like a CSA program and we would partner with synagogues or JCCs to be like the drop off sites for the for the farmers produce and then would do like educational um activities like around Uh, Jews and food and farming Mm. Um, so it was all very like it sounds very niche now but it was like literally like I lived and breathed that stuff um, Mm. during that time Um, and when I decided that you know I kind of wanted to shift away from the nonprofit world and start writing full-time that was just where my my passion was food farming Jewish life uh, the holidays and it kind of just like flowed from there
0: so beautiful. Yeah. So in the last really seven or eight years, um, you've really made a name for yourself and you really have yeah. carved out this uh, this beautiful niche. And I really love this notion of food and, and spirituality and now, of course, environment too. In your book, you had the forward written by Julia Tertian, who is certainly someone who puts puts that all together as well. And she's for a real sure. social activist. And I think she's got a real spiritual vibe about her, too. But there was a story in the introduction that just made me laugh out loud. I love this story. Um, And it talks about how food is so powerful and it helps heal what is broken. Mm. And uh, that was really my my takeaway. And her story was so funny that her grandmother – I guess lived in some building somewhere, and she noticed a couple of young kids running down the street with her television. All right, (laughs) (laughs) they had stolen her television. Oh my gosh! And what did she do? She said, "Are you guys hungry? Hmm. Let me feed you." Wow. Yeah,
1: Leah, do you have a story like that? It's less about. Healing and more about connection, um, but it's a similar it's a similar idea. Should I share it now or when we come back? I think when we come back. Okay. Thanks so much. Great. Sure.
0: Duh. Here's a cooking
1: tip to share. This one from my guest, Leah Koenig. So I add onion powder to pretty much everything. Um, I especially love it in dishes like uh, frittatas or um, casseroles, where you often find that it's um, tasty, but kind of missing a dimension of flavor. And that onion powder really just punches up the savory umaminess in a way that almost nothing else can. From Leah's kitchen to
0: yours, give it a try and pass it along.
1: Will I find in the Leah Koenig, tell me your story. So it's less a story about healing, but it is one about making connections and it's actually for me a big part of, of why I wrote this this most recent book, the Jewish Cookbook. Um, so as I mentioned, you know earlier, Jewish food is really a, a, this global cuisine, and um, it's you know I grew up eating Eastern European dishes and not really being very aware of the rest of the world of Jewish food. Mm. Um, but I was working on a story once. This was probably six or seven years ago about Ethiopian Jewish food, mm. which a lot of people don't even know is a thing. Right, um, And are those the Falasha Jews? Yes. Ethiopian yeah. Jews? Okay. So, yes. Yeah. So the, the Jews of Ethiopia lived kind of separately from the rest of the Jewish world for a long time. And then, you know, in this 80s and 90s um, were literally airlifted to most of them to Israel, um, where the community now is today. So I was... Um, Interviewing a woman named B G Barhani, who actually is a restaurant owner in uh, in Harlem. She's a restaurant called the Sion Cafe. That's incredible. You should go really? sometime. It's it's Ethiopian meats, Middle Eastern food, and it's ah, oh,
0: I can't think of anything delicious, more fabulous. But uh, spell it for me, so I Sion.
1: It's T S I O N, like Zion. T S I O N in Cafe. Harlem. Yes. wonderful. Yeah, Cafe. go run, go go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so this was before she owned that, and you know, I was like, can I come cook with you so I can mm. learn um, some of your recipes. And, you know, she, um, graciously said yes. And so, you know, I went up to her home, which is, uh, her apartment's also in Harlem. And, um, I was in her kitchen and, you know, she was making dora wat, which is a very, you know, common Ethiopian is it stew. Oh, it's a stew. Uh, no, not injera. Yeah. No, dora wat, uh. it's like a chicken and, um, Okay. Uh, hard-boiled eggs, stew with the uh, um, bare berry, the f- kind of fiery spice that is used a lot, and um, ginger and garlic and all sorts of good things. Um, and it was a completely unfamiliar dish to me at the time. Mm. I haven't eaten a ton of Ethiopian Jewish food. And mostly when I do, I, I eat Ethi- uh, I eat vegetarian at Ethiopian restaurants and, um, so it was completely unfamiliar to me and I was just like, what is going on? And then, you know, but capturing it and really kind of the, the curiosity, of asking her all these questions about like the giant jar of bear berry that her mom sends her from Israel because she can't find it here. Uh, so she like brings it with her and uses it. Uh, and Leah, is that a spice mixture or a spice? Yes. It's a spice mixture. It's a lot of chilies and a bunch. It's a very complex spice mixture, but the focus is the chilies. It's, it's hot. Um, but you know it was Friday morning, and her two little kids were running around and The kitchen within a few minutes smelled like onions and it smelled like garlic and um Just the context of it was so familiar and it mm. to me, it was a moment of connection where I said, "Okay, Jewish food may be incredibly diverse; it may be you know from all over different parts of the world, and you know that can be contentious sometimes depending on where you are but There's a through line of Jewish Mm. food that is a a through line of the holidays, a through line of um, of family, a through line of just why you're making the food in the first place. Um, And it's not exactly the same as feeding people who stole your television. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually not like that at all. But it was this moment where I realized the power of food to connect and the power of food to um, bring people together and to kind of go across uh, boundaries and borders. So that, yeah, that's... Well, it's equally as beautiful, oh, thanks. Uh, this story.
0: <laughs> and, you know, I, I had a friend, uh, not a close friend, but someone, we were talking about food one day, and she said that she always wanted to write a cookbook. I said, well, great, and what would you call it? And she said, her title was, First, you brown the
1: onions. <laughs> it's not, it's not wrong, it's, right? It's
0: not wrong. But I love this connection uh, that you had that had to do with an olfactory memory. And mm. that is so potent. And it turns out that the olfactory hub in our brain is like – very, very close to the same area where memory is stored, mm. hence, you know, Proust, Madeleine, and just the power of yeah, of, of that. Mm-hmm. But you did say something about sort of Jewish food and the diaspora and all over the world, and that it can also be a little bit contentious. Mm-hmm. And I did want to ask you this. I'm sort of taking a risk a little bit, but let's talk about Israeli food mm-hmm. and the presence of Arabic recipes in what is considered Israeli cuisine. And I know that's really a topic of conversation today. It's a little bit heated. Sure. Uh, definitely political and this idea of appropriation. Mm-hmm. Uh, any thoughts about that? <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. Any question. I mm-hmm. mean, I I think that if you're being honest, pretty much all Jewish food is appropriated, right? But I don't think that that's necessarily has to be a bad thing, right? Like if you go to Ukraine and you say, borscht is a Jewish food, they would look at you funny. They would say, what are you talking about? Borscht is a everybody food. Borscht is a Ukrainian food. It's the national Mm. dish of Ukraine. (laughs) But if you go to a delicatessen in New York City and you ask for borscht, it's a Jewish food, Mm. right? And it's because Jews, again, were adapters and transmitters of a cuisine and brought the food here and it became associated with the Jewish community. Um, And it is 100% true that the foods of... um, Israel's Arabic neighbors, uh, Palestine, uh, Lebanon, Syria, you know, those foods are part of Israeli cuisine today. Um, It's partially because um, there are a lot of Jews who lived in those countries who moved um, to Israel and relocated, you know, from Egypt, from Iraq, from wherever and brought those dishes. Um, And it's also because, you know, Jews... As they have and we have throughout history eat the foods of our neighbors um, and say, ooh, that looks delicious. Like um, you know, let let me try that. Let me bring that into um into our cuisine. And I think where it gets to be an issue is when the foods are then spoken of as if they were exclusively or originally Jewish. Mm. Right. I think a food can be Jewish and it can also be Palestinian it can you know it can whether you're talking about hummus or um or falafel or all of these dishes that are kind of the hot button issues to call them jewish foods or israeli foods mm-hmm. maybe more to the point it's not incorrect but not exclusively.
0: Yeah, you know, I have very strong feelings about uh, a lot of this, and even just the the use of the word appropriation, um, I think, can be so unfortunate. For it sure. doesn't mean that it's not appropriate in very specific cases. In mm-hmm. fact, many cases. Yes. But when it comes to cuisine, I, uh, and art, uh, and music, to some extent. Um, you know, I think a, a better word is <laughs> inspired by For sure. or borrowed from. Because, you know, in the world of poetry, it's almost a, a, a compliment um, to take a line from someone or be inspired. But then in the the poem, at the top of the poem, it would say after mm-hmm. the name of the poet. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit about not appropriation, but are we attributing yes. enough? Yes. So I think that's really part of the dialogue. But um, in terms of specifically, though, Israel and Palestine, I think – a Another way to look at it, and it's the way everyone used to eat hundreds of years ago because um, we all ate from the land. Mm-hmm. That's what we ate. Mm-hmm. That's what our cuisine was. So uh, in Israel, it's there's a phrase called cuisine baladi, food of the land. And uh, so, of course, anyone who lives there will be sharing that. Uh, because that's what specifically is grown and it, the seasons and paying attention to all of this. But
1: it that's a different be, kind yes. of show. <laughs> yes. I'll, I will say it should be a moment of, of connection between different cultures. And because of politics and the situation, it's not. And that makes me, you know, sad because I feel like we could all be sharing the same plate of hummus um, and swiping it up together with pita, and it just doesn't happen that way.
0: And we can bring this back to your beautiful story about the dorawat yeah. and uh, and the connection For sure. there. For sure. It's really wonderful. Yeah. I'm curious, though, why do you usually just eat vegetarian in Ethiopian restaurants?
1: Um, that's a good question. Um, so I... Um, for a long time was a vegetarian. That was sort of the environmental piece of it. So I started being a vegetarian when I was 17 and Hmm. stopped when I was around 27. So about 10 10 years. Um, And then I also keep um, a kosher kitchen at home. Ah. My husband's family is uh, Orthodox. So even though he and I are not Orthodox, um, you know we keep the kitchen kind of accessible to his family, to his parents, um, so but I think you know most of the most of the Ethiopian cuisine that I was eating was during the period of my being a vegetarian, um, and there 's so much great vegetarian Ethiopian food that you didn 't feel like you were missing out on that much
0: fascinating yeah and are
1: there any Ethiopian recipes in the book there are there 's three or four there 's Dora wat, um, the one I just yes. talked about there 's kikwat, which is a lentil stew. Um, and there's dabo, which is um, a beautiful kind of flour uh, loaf, uh, yeasted bread um, that is eaten on the Sabbath, um, kind of like challah bread, um, but it's it's. Saved for the Sabbath because the rest of the week um, injera, the, the teff flour, um, kind of spongy, delicious uh, pancake bread is used. And so this is like the, the separate kind of special bread that's eaten on Shabbat.
0: Mm, this yeah. book has made you really smart. Oh. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I am I have this in my hand. It is a big, gorgeous, heavy cookbook. It's called The Jewish Cookbook by Leah Koenig. And it's published by faden or feden p h a i d o n who do the most beautiful books um uh, let tell me about the research because you know you can know what you know,
1: but how many different cuisines are actually in this book? oh gosh, that's a great question I mean dozens um, you know I, the research was for me the the most important and the most exciting part of the book um, I've been writing about Jewish food now for over. 10 years, I guess, yeah, something like 12 or 13. And um, I would say there's 10% of the recipes in there were things I had never heard of and that I discovered mm. while researching for this book. Um, and that was just incredibly exciting. Um, to... And how do you go about doing research? Um, so a couple different ways. Uh, you know, I I quadrupled ish my own uh jewish cookbook collection so i have historic jewish cookbooks from greece and um, Mm. i have a cookbook from um you know the jews of cochin india and you know i wasn't looking for recipes um specifically but i was looking for dishes to make sure uh that i was representing all of the cuisines um adequately and um i also have a lot of friends from different jewish backgrounds so i would say hey you know My friend Neely, you're from uh, an Iranian background. What does your family have on the Rosh Hashanah table? Like what Mm. absolutely has to be part of your Passover celebration? And that would kind of lead me towards um, new dishes. Um, and then I also cooked with a lot of people, like B.G. Barhani that I mentioned before. You know, I cooked with a Syrian Jewish woman and a Moroccan Jewish woman and someone from Greece. And, you know, I just um, learned the most amazing, not just recipes, but also techniques that I try really hard to um, replicate in uh, in the writing.
0: So. I think that's what astonished me so much. You know, I, I like to cook, but I don't like to cook everything. But you have offered everything in this book, and I know you're such a fastidious recipe tester, you know, from soup to nuts. And and, and, and um, one recipe I saw, something called, caught my eye, uh, bazargan, bazargan, it is a dish made out of bulgur, which mm-hmm. is sort of like, is it? Like a tabbouleh, but made out of...
1: Yeah, it's a similar made, yeah. it's a similar dish to tabbouleh in that it's a bulgur-based um, cold salad, but mm-hmm. um, it uses... But it was different. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it uses tamarind paste in the dressing, so it has this great kind of... It's a Syrian dish, so it also has a little bit of allspice in it, which is a very mm. common um, Syrian uh, spice. But it has this sort of like tangy... Um, Sour, uh, bright flavor that is a little bit different than tabbouleh. Um It's I really can't wait it's really to make good. that.
0: And then there was also a, a fried fish with a cilantro garlic sauce that I thought looked so good. Yeah, and and a spinach walnut pate that looked fantastic. Yeah, what are some of your favorite recipes in this book?
1: Um, those are actually some of my favorites. The, How funny the spinach, yeah, <laughs> the spinach uh, walnut pate is. It's a Georgian recipe, um, and again, Georgian Russian, Georgian. Yes, yeah. right. Um, <laughs> and it is again a recipe that everyone from Georgia eats, but you know the Jews uh, have at specific times of year and, and things like that. Um, one dish I really love though is. Um, it's it's one of the more you kind of referenced early, or that there are really easy recipes and, and there's more complicated, complicated ones. Yes. So this is one of the more complicated ones, but to me, it's really worth making. It's the Alsatian Kugelhopf.
0: <laughs> oh, so this is a Kugelhopf is a dessert. Ah,
1: uh, yes, it's like a hybrid between a bread and a cake. So ah. you could have it for me. It's like the perfect brunch um, centerpiece, uh, but it's basically like um, a very buttery b- bread. Um, that has uh, dried fruits and nuts and it's baked in this like really kind of um, special bunt pan called a kugelhopf pan. Ah. Um, I would argue that you you have to spend the, the twenty bucks on Amazon to get the pan because otherwise it's just not it's just not the same. Um, but als- it's kind of decorated right or it, very dimpled it and is. it has some height to it. It has height, yeah. right? It almost looks like a cathedral a little bit. A cathedral. Yeah. Nice. I mean I don't know that's not so <laughs> I love Jewish it. but <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, or maybe a mountaintop maybe that's mm. more to the point being good. It's from Alsace. Yes. And so but Alsace is really the 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 birthplace of Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine a lot of people don't realize that I had no idea the kind of where Germany and France meet is where Ashkenazi cuisine began and then it spread to other parts of Central and Eastern Europe Um, so I just love that that dish is really delicious and also kind of opens your mind to like oh Eastern European I mean Ashkenazi cuisine it's not all from Eastern Europe
0: Yes. So I Fascinating. That and, yeah, I love And and what makes it complicated is it yeast based. I'm I'm always a little nervous about doing anything with yeah. yeast.
1: Yeah. No, it well so it is a a yeast um bread so you have to let it rise, but it's really the amount of butter in there. You end up with a very sticky dough, you and you you have this impulse to add more flour to it. <laughs> And you shouldn't resist this impulse. Yeah, resist. I actually say it, I think, in the book like it's going to feel too wet and too sticky, and just go with it because um, it will bake up so tender if you kind of let it uh, be sticky. And you just have to sort of be in charge of the dough and put it in the pan. (laughs) (laughs) But this level of care
0: and detail, you know, you put in every single one of these 400-plus recipes. And How long did it take you to write
1: um, the I Jewish had, cookbook? I had uh, two years to do the manuscript. I, you know, I could have stretched it out much longer, but I, I did the best I could in two yeah. years.
0: I'm, I'm thinking, you know, with saying these three words, the Jewish cookbook, where does the emphasis go? Is it on cookbook? Is it on Jewish? No, I think it is the word the Jewish cookbook. <laughs> it is the Jewish cookbook. And And with that in mind, I'm wondering... You may not be able to answer this, but what percentage of the recipes in here would fall into sort of Eastern European Ashkenazi as opposed to Middle Eastern?
1: Um, I don't know exact percentages, mm-hmm. but um, I definitely tried to have a pretty even mix between Ashkenazi um, Sephardi, which, you know, the the foods of um, the Iberian Peninsula, so Spain and Portugal that then moved everywhere after the Inquisition. so. That yeah, and then uh, the the Middle Eastern kind of Mizrahi um, Jewish cuisine, and then the outlier communities: Ethiopia, India, um, Georgia, places um, you know, uh, Azerbaijan, like places that mm. Jews live and cook. That don't really fall neatly into those three categories.
0: And what about Yemen and the condiment of the moment, shrook, which I yeah. really can't pronounce. But you have
1: a- <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have a recipe for it. Um, I love it. It's you know cilantro and uh, uh, coriander and chilies, and it's really it's really delicious. Um, yeah. It's so
0: funny the way these things take hold, right? But it, it really is, is the, the the you know the little condiment of the moment, as I said, very like trendy, fiery,
1: fiery pesto. <laughs> Fiery pesto is a great way to put it.
0: <laughs> Leah, thank you. And when we come back, I want to hear about your legacy recipe, about your children, and what's most meaningful to you right now. And the gate to the garden of fulfilled desire is reached by a road Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. Leah, before we hear your legacy recipe and a little bit about your children and what's important to you now, uh, my producer always loves to ask this question. Is there anything we should know about you that most people don't know?
1: We sort of talked about it before, but the the amount of um, picky that I was I really truly was a very picky picky eater um to the point where I did not eat pizza until I was fifteen because I didn't like tomatoes or melted cheese Wow um so there so there really was a moment for me of uh, of sort of developing as an eater that uh, I feel like a lot of people who are cooking people who love to cook it's it's from when they were children and for me it really wasn't That's
0: fascinating, actually. Yeah.
1: Thank you for that, because I
0: think we just assume, uh, in a way, that people who
1: are born with a palate are. That's right. No, some people develop it later.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, a late bloomer. That's what we need to know about you. Okay, so we always talk about uh, a legacy recipe, and it means different things to different people. But you know, someday. Your son or daughter may be on a show having the same conversations about the smells and you know, their childhood kitchen. Um, So that could be a recipe, a legacy recipe. But what what comes to mind for you?
1: Um, I really think for me it would have to be brisket. Um, You know, I I think I mentioned earlier brisket was a a dish that my mother made that was very important to me. But um, the dish that people... Email me about the most, or that I get the most sort of, um, you know, instant message messages about is, is are my brisket recipes, and I have a few at this point because I have, uh, I think, three different cookbooks that have brisket recipes in them, and they're all a little different, um, but I really. I really strive to make brisket not just juicy, but also deeply flavorful. And to Mm. think about it as like any other braised meat, where you want to have a little acid, a little sweetness, a little um, umami, a lot of umami actually, multiple layers of it. Wow! So where does the umami come from? (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, the meat itself certainly provides a lot of it. But I love putting onion powder in uh, brisket, and I think onion powder gets a really bad rap because people think I'm talking about Lipton's onion soup mix, which I'm not. (laughs) I'm talking. about pure, unadulterated, ground-up, dehydrated onion. And it really, you can add all the fresh onions you want to brisket, um, and having that little half teaspoon or teaspoon of onion powder makes all the difference. So that's an amazing cooking tip, by oh, the way. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and it's
0: so funny you should mention that, right? Right before the show, I was reading this month's um, Food and Wine magazine and looked at a recipe for some of the hot new... F- Chefs in France and what they were cooking up, and it really looked interesting and good and a little eclectic. And in the ingredient list, I saw onion powder, and I said to myself, even a year or two ago, There's no way an editor at Food & Wine magazine would allow that to be. But I think that's really changing because it's real.
1: It's a real thing. Yeah. I wrote a whole article about people need to get over their snobbishness with (laughs) onion powder. (laughs) Um, My mother put it in everything too, so I
0: love that. But tell me about the – and now I'm so curious about all of your brisket recipes. I want to know everything. But what is the one that is the most outstanding for you?
1: Well, so the one that I love the most is – is based off of a dish that my husband and I had when we were um, honeymooning in Rome. Uh, We Mm -hmm. had dinner at um, a Shabbat dinner at the sort of one of the top kosher caterers in Rome. It was a friend of a friend of a friend type of a situation. And I was vegetarian at the time. We show up at his house and the table is covered in meat dishes (laughs) with like maybe one little um, dish of polenta on the side, just as like an afterthought. (laughs) And I looked at my husband and I said, if the phrase when in Rome ever applies, it's going to be tonight. And I'm <laughs> going to put my vegetarianism aside and I'm going to eat everything on the table. And I did. And the the standout dish was um, something called stracotto, which mm. is basically Italian, uh, it's Italian pot roast or, you know, brisket. Um, the dish is in the book and it's it's brisket or pot roast, but it's, um has red wine, and, like lots of kind of very... Not Manischewitz, like Burgundy, like a deep red wine. Maybe a Chianti. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Why not? Barolo. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And lots of onions and garlic um, and uh, other aromatics. And it was just the most outstanding dish I've ever had. So I have... um, a variation in modern Jewish cooking that is a red wine and honey brisket, um, mm. and literally every year someone is like, "I made this brisket for the and for the first time, and like my family will never let me make another brisket." So that's an amazing thing to hear when you've developed a recipe that people really connect with. Yes, oh, um, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, and what what cut kind of meat do you use for it? Um, I often uh, use first cut brisket. I Some people swear by second cut because it's fattier, but first cut's less expensive. And honestly, when you're cooking it that low and slow, you get to the same place anyway. Um, and do you do it on top of the stove or in the oven? Uh, I do it in the
0: oven. Yeah. It sounds so delicious. So the red wine and honey brisket, brisket would be your legacy recipe. I think so. Yeah, I can yeah. see why. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking um that this has to be a Jewish Italian dish because you mentioned and our friend Arthur Schwartz taught me this. I know he's your very dear friend too, um, that Italians don't put onions and garlic in the same dish. So I'm thinking the fact that this recipe has both maybe really feels like it has Jewish roots as opposed to sort oh, of Italian roots, it's which is which is kind of interesting. Leah you were a picky eater as a child, and you have two very young children. Your son is five, and your daughter is six months old.
1: Yes, just starting um, to eat a little bit. <laughs> wow.
0: So what what do you make for them? What are some um, of your family, your go-to family recipes yes. now?
1: So I... Um, I cook for them as much as they will let me. I mean, My daughter's still very young. My son is also in a picky phase. So he loves, you know, plain salmon and he loves, you know, chicken, but he doesn't want any sauce on it. So mm-hmm. I do a lot of uh, dishes. Like last night I made shawarma, chicken shawarma for did myself you. and my husband. And I'll pull a little of the chicken aside and kind of like just make that plain for him. Without so, the spices. Yes. Okay. Um, but I did get him to eat uh, the sweet potato latkes that are in the the Jewish cookbook when I was testing them. And he actually dipped them in maple syrup because we called them pancakes. (laughs) And you
0: use real maple maple syrup. Oh, of course, we use real maple syrup.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) So he, I, he will get there. Um, But it is just a joy to be able to feed them and to to see little bits of budding curiosity
0: Mm, starting.
1: Those sound delicious too, and that may become yet another legacy recipe: the sweet
0: potato latkes that your son ate when he was five years old. Yeah, I think um you know so many people want to do what you're doing and become food writers and recipe testers and and um really kind of food scholars. Mm. Do you have any advice for people getting started?
1: Yeah, I mean it's not an easy career to break into as I think anybody who doesn't knows and a lot of us kind of fell into it without even realizing that we were falling into <laughs> it. Um but I would just say you know, don't be afraid to almost pigeonhole yourself, right? Like, when I first started writing, I didn't want to be a Jewish food writer. I, I didn't think I would be serious enough if I was only writing about Jewish food. But the more I did it, the more I really realized, um, A, that there's just so much, there's such there's an entire world to discover through it. Um, and B, it's what I was passionate about. And the more I sort of leaned into that, the The more success I started to have, because I think I took deeper pride in the work that I was doing, and I I took it really seriously. And then eventually, like you know, editors start to see that you're taking it seriously, and you start to become the the person they go to for that uh, whatever. So whatever your passion is, it doesn't have to be Jewish cuisine, but whatever it is, really figure figure out what it is, um, and go and go for it. That's actually wonderful
0: advice and maybe even a a little counterintuitive. I was going to ask you whether it was a bit of a problem to be so specific. Um, But I believe, did uh, Feiden, the publisher, come to you to do this book in fact? They did. Yeah, they did. So there you go. In a very short period of time, you know, you really did create this niche for yourself. And the book is so beautiful. And I know that one of your readers um, was very excited that there were two ribbon placeholders in the book.
1: (laughs) I, I thought that was a great detail. That was really sweet. Yeah, yeah it's a be- they d- fight and did a beautiful job, yes. for
0: sure. And I wish you so much love and luck oh, on your tour as you. you go forward. And I know you're having a trip to Poland also to be part of this and celebrate the publication of the Jewish cookbook. <laughs> um Leah, I ask all of my guests this question. What does one woman kitchen mean to you?
1: Oh, I well, I would hope that um one woman kitchen would be a place where anybody, whether they're a man or woman, can can honor the work that women do in the kitchen mm. um, and can really realize that um, food is deeply women's work. Mm-hmm. in a way, not not exclusively, but throughout history, women have nurtured, women have um, become scholars, women have um, taken care of others in the kitchen. Um, and I really think that that is not something to be scoffed at. It's something to deeply celebrate. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Thank you so much. It's really beautiful. I know that everyone is going to want to be in touch with you and stay connected but they'll also want that recipe for the honey <laughs> and red wine brisket. So how do people find you?
1: Um, well, they can find me on my website, which is just Um, I'm on Instagram, leah.koenig. And um, I think my website has my email. So feel free to be in touch. That's yeah. wonderful. I'm going to email you
0: for that recipe as well. <laughs> and uh, what's, what's next for you?
1: Um, well, so I'm touring with this book um, because I have the six-month-old, I am going to kind of Space the tour out through throughout the the year instead of being gone intensely for several weeks. Um, so I've got a lot of trips um, to LA and to Chicago and to Toronto and uh, Ann Arbor, all sorts of places, kind of coming up. Um, and then just um, I'm continuing to write and figuring out what the next the next big project will be. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Best of luck and happy new year.
0: Thank you. You. Fifty seven eighty. 80 yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Roseanne. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining me and Leah in my kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network.
1: Amplify and connect.